You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the June 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, you will hear an interview with Yasmin Imad and Dr. Keith Petrie, who will be giving an overview of their paper entitled, Why Do Patients with Gout Not Take Elipirinol? So today I'm speaking to Yasmana Imad, PhD student, and Dr. Keith Petrie, who will give us an overview of their paper, Why Do Patients, not, patients with Gout Not Take Elipirinol's Behalf of Their Colleagues? This paper is now available for viewing on the journal's website at jroom.org. So I want to thank Yasmin and Keith Pe- Yasmin Eman and uh, Keith Petrie, authors of the paper, for interviewing, taking the time to interview me with me on the issues of non-adherence of allopurinol in people with gout. So the issue of non-adherence is very important in all rheumatic diseases. So why did you particularly put gout to examine non-adherence? Well, adherence is a very big problem in gout. We know from various surveys that probably less than half of patients are still taking uh, the drug at 12 months. And and this is probably an underestimate. Um, And so um, it's certainly a big problem in rheumatology, but uh, you know, it's not only rheumatology that adherence is a problem, it's probably the biggest problem facing medicine today. People uh, are reluctant to take medicines or they take them for a short time and, and drop off quite um, quickly. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue. We, we sort of keep on making better and better drugs, but people don't uh, take the old, even take the old cheap ones. So um, I'm I'm a health psychologist, and a lot of my research is, on, is focused on adherence and, and looking at the reasons why people don't uh, take their medicines and developing interventions to try and improve it. And uh, one of the things that really hasn't got much attention in the, in the adherence area is the, is the role of intentional non-adherence, which is when people make a conscious decision about deciding not to take their medicine and we think we thought this was an interesting area to explore and in, in gout because um, because of the high rates of non-adherence and because gout's a f- very interesting illness in terms of um, thinking about um, the match between the, the patient's model of the illness which is often an acute one and the reality which is that gout's actually a chronic illness um, so there's a lot of a lot of room for, if you like, um, uh, people to make their own decisions about treatment that may not line up with with their um, the way the doctors prescribe the medicine. I hope you enjoyed listening to Emat and Petri's overview of their paper. Why do patients with gout not take allopurinol? 
and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with them and read the full-length article, both of which are available on our website at www.jroom.org. Next article I'd like to highlight is entitled Impact of Tofacitinib on Components of the ACR Response Post-Hoc Analysis of Phase 3 and Phase 3B for Trials and is by Bissett and colleagues. In this paper, the investigators used pooled data from RA randomized controlled trials of tofacitinib to assess its effect on patient and physician reported outcome. They found that 20, 50, and 70% improvement rates were higher for most physician versus patient reported measures. Although at early time points, some measures of patient and physician outcomes were similar. They found that CDAI and SDAI remission were achieved by 27.8 to 45% of ACR 70 responders receiving tofacitinib at month three. This paper highlights that physician and patient reported outcomes may be divergent and that complete scores in studies have higher weightings in physician than patient recorded measures. The findings of this study suggest that patient reported outcome targets may differ than physician reported composite measures in the management of RA symptoms in clinical practice. The authors expand on this issue in the paper. The next article to highlight examines the importance of health literacy, including a specific component of health literacy called numeracy, which determines quantitative math skills, including calculating drugs doses. This certainly was not a concept I was aware of before reading this paper. Mathis Ranathan and colleagues in, a, in their paper entitled Association of Health Literacy and Numeracy with Lupus Knowledge and the Creation of the Lupus Knowledge Assessment Tool examined these two issues in 125 patients with SLE followed at their academic clinic and using the Lupus Knowledge Assessment Test. They found that 33% of patients had limited literacy and 76% had limited numeracy. They found that limited health literacy, but not numeracy, was associated with lower knowledge about lupus, as measured by the lupus knowledge assessment tent, even after they adjusted for patients' education level. In the discussion, the authors described the implications of their findings and suggest that lupus knowledge assessment tests can be used clinically and modified to improve health literacy and patient care and thereby improve patient outcomes. The lupus knowledge assessment test itself is shown in the paper and may be used as a simple screen in clinical practice. The next paper to highlight and has an accompanying editorial and examines the issue of the treatment of patients with childhood onset lupus nephritis. It is entitled The Use of 
urolupocyclophosphamide dosing for the treatment of lupus nephritis in childhood onset systemic lupus erythematosus in North America and is by Canon et al. on behalf of the CARA Lupus Nephritis Workshop. The authors used a 35-item web-based survey, which was distributed in April of 2020, to examine the preference for the treatment of childhood onset lupus nephritis for either low-dose urolupus protocol or high-dose NIH cyclophosphamide protocol. total of 44% of the pediatric rheumatologists from CARA responded, while only 11% of pediatric nephrologists from the Pediatric Nephrology Research Consortium responded to the survey. 92% of the respondents were from the U.S. and 8% from Canada. The authors found that only half of the respondents reported in 2020 that they had ever used the Euro Lupus protocol. However, this was significant from their first survey of 2009 when only 6% had stated that they had used this. The use of Euro Lupus versus NIH protocol was dependent on the severity of the lupus nephritis. Respondents indicated that if a patient had mild to moderate class four lupus nephritis with a normal GFR, then 45% chose the lupus, urolupus protocol as compared to only three, 23% would choose the urolupus protocol for a severe case of class four lupus nephritis. In the second part of the study, they examined the use of cyclophosphamide versus MMF in an illustrated case of a 14-year-old with class four lupus nephritis. They found that 51% would initially use cyclophosphamide, 39% MMF, and 9% other treatments. Regarding cyclophosphamide, 63% chose the NIH protocol and 32% the lupus, urolupus protocol. Overall, the authors found that although there was an increase in the use of the urolupus protocol, from 20, uh, 2009 to 2020, the familiarity in this group of pediatric rheumatologists in North America still remained low for the Eurolupus protocol. Please read the complete paper in the accompanying editorial entitled Treatment of Childhood Onset Proliferative Lupus Nephritis a call to catch up with the evidence. It's by doctors Damien Noon and Earl Silverman, who of course is me, as they outline a summary of the current treatment of class four lupus nephritis and compare the treatment 
uh, class 4 lupus nephritis in patients with adult onset SLE as compared to those with childhood onset SLE. The final paper to highlight for the June edition examines the important issue of minimal clinically important difference and specifically a meaningful change within a patient. The article is entitled, Womack Meaningful Within Patient Change Results from Three Studies of of Tenazunumab in Patients with Moderate to Severe Osteoarthritis of the Hip or Knee and is by Conahan and colleagues. The authors used data from three separate phase three trials examining the treatment of 4,480 patients with moderate to severe knee or hip OA. They found that there was a good relationship between the change in patient PGA and all domains found as the WOMAC. A one category change in PGA corresponded to WOMAC score changes of between 12.5 to 16.2% while a two-category change corresponded to a 25 to 32.5% change. In the results section of the article, you are shown in detail the relationship between the changes of the individual components of the WOMAC and changes in the PGA across the individual studies. In the discussion, the authors outlined the implications and importance of their findings for both studies and clinical care in OA. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 58-year-old woman with a two-year history of systemic sclerosis who presented to hospital with alternating diarrhea and constipation. She was found to have a distended non-tender abdomen, which was tympanic. Plain x-rays and CT scan of her abdomen showed the hide-bound bowel sign. The author reviews what is known of this unusual complication of systemic sclerosis. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the June 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print or online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. In July, we will begin a new feature entitled Invited Expert Reviews, and we will cover topics that the editorial committee feel will be of interest to the readership. I hope you enjoy reading the new feature, and if you have suggestions for expert reviews, you may be interested, please send them to me at earlesilverman at jroom.com. Please watch my interviews with the authors of the highlighted article, not only of this month, but of previous month, if you had missed them. They are available at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on the highlighted articles or suggestions how to improve the podcast, or in fact, comments on any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com.
Facebook.com. Please listening, listen next month to the July edition of Editor's Highlights, and please stay healthy.